Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you as you've welcomed us. We open ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our souls to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you you tell us that we can come to you, that you are kind, you are gentle, you are humble with your presence and your approach to us who are weary and burdened. And we long to find rest for our souls. So help us to learn what it looks like to come to you, to take up your yoke, to learn from you, and to find your yoke is easy and your burden is light. For this in Jesus' name, amen. In 2001, there was an artist named Rachel Whiteread who installed an art piece that she entitled Monument in London's Trafalgar Square um, in a space on the northwest corner of that square called the Fourth Plinth. This is a picture of that art installation. This plinth was built originally in 1841 and was intended to hold an equestrian statue of William IV, but it was never completed due to insufficient funding. And it's a, it's a sort of odd piece, and White Reed's pieces are like this. Um, but if, if you're the kind of person like me who doesn't get art the first time, let me just explain a little bit what she's trying to do. Um, she's taken this granite plinth, and if you can see, essentially she's emptied it out, and she's inverted it. She's turned it upside down. And what she's offering up here, as artists and poets and prophets like to do, is her own stinging critique of contemporary society. What she's basically saying is all the power, all the strength, when you think about granite, you think of power and strength, all the power, all the strength, and all the planning that society puts into building empires is ultimately empty and incomplete and needs to be turned upside down. That's the essence of what she's offering up here. In our passage today, Jesus is doing something similar to the religious architecture of his day. We're going to hear, and you've heard just a second ago, some of the strongest words of critique that Jesus has offered in the book of Matthew up to this point. And what's probably more surprising than anything else is that these words of critique, of rebuke, of prophecy, that what needs to be turned upside down in this with these words of salvation and judgment is not a pagan world but actually is the religious world of Jesus' day, the church, we might say, are the ones who need to be turned upside down. We often save our strongest critiques for secular society, and we talk about, you know, society's going to hell in a handbasket and these kinds of things, but Jesus says, no, 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 it's actually the religious who need to hear my strongest words, and it's the religious who need to hear this invitation to come to Jesus. And so let's look at this together Jesus' words of warning and then his invitation. Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done. Now, just a quick reminder of the context from a couple of weeks ago. Here in Matthew chapter 11, John the baptizer has been thrown in prison for calling out Herod for a, an affair and a marriage uh, that was uh, illicit. And John is as he looks at the life and ministry of Jesus going through this massive crisis of doubt, and we talked about that crisis of doubt several weeks ago, and Jesus basically tells John, 
I know that I'm not meeting your expectations, but you're gonna have to learn to trust me and you're gonna have to wrestle with those doubts because I am the Messiah, but my kingdom is not going to come the way that you think. And so Jesus is using all this cryptic language up top, at the top half of uh, verses one through 19 to talk about his own identity as the Messiah to the crowds, to talk about his kingdom because he knows if he just comes right out with it, he'll be thrown in prison like John and he'll be killed, which eventually will happen, but Jesus knows that his time has not yet come. So as he's wrapping up the speech to the crowds about John and about himself, he gives this very pointed warning to a few of the towns where he's just preached the gospel and he's just performed all of these miracles. He denounces, or another way to translate that could be scolded the towns. And the key in understanding what Jesus is saying here is because they didn't repent. Why is Jesus so frustrated with these people? Because they didn't repent. Now, this is a callback to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, all the way back in chapter 4, verse 17, which seems like, you know, so long ago in our teaching series here. But if you remember that Jesus began his ministry after he was baptized, his very first sermon that he preached in Matthew was essentially this. In 417, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This word repent is the Greek word metanoia, which literally means to to change your mind or to change direction, or as Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases it in the message, change everything, God's kingdom is here. So Jesus is angry because despite his popularity with the crowds, despite all of the miracles and all of the healings of their physical bodies that Jesus has offered in his ministry, there hasn't been deep transformation of their lives. There's the healing of their bodies, but not the transformation of their inner person. You see, miracles were never designed to be parlor tricks to draw a crowd. Jesus isn't trying to launch a brand or a movement. Miracles were intended to be signs pointing to a deeper reality of the kingdom healing and salvation that Jesus was offering. Miracles were intended to lead people to repentance and faith in Jesus. Just as your physical body is sick and needs to be healed, your soul is also sick and needs to be healed and restored back to life with God. Because of that, Jesus issues a series of woes. Not like woe, W-H-O-A, but woe, W-O-E. And a woe is, is really the strongest language. If you were a Hebrew or a Jewish person familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, your mind should go back to the prophets, back to Jeremiah, back to Isaiah, back to Hosea, because a woe combines two ideas from the Hebrew scriptures and from Jewish culture. Um, the first idea is this Old Testament pattern of cursing and blessing that was tied to the genuineness or the authenticity of how you practiced your faith. So Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament, um, they knew and they thought that they were blessed and they were the righteous ones because of how they were living their lives. And they thought that the pagan nations around them were the cursed, unrighteous ones because of how they lived their lives. So Jesus is turning this blessing, cursing thing on its head with the religious people. And then secondly, a woe is tied to uh, mourning, 
right? So the idea of professional mourners, when somebody would die, the townspeople would often, or the family would often hire a professional mourner. And they would literally walk around the town for days and weeks on end, doing nothing but screaming out. Like if you have infants and you know that ear-piercing scream in the middle of the night, you know what I'm talking about? That kind of shriek for days on end to signal that there's been a death and we need to stop and pay attention. In the same way, Jesus's woes function like this ear-piercing shriek where Jesus is picturing himself as a kind of professional mourner that's been hired by Yahweh to proclaim the death of the religious framework of his day. Woe to you, he says two times. Now, these towns that he's addressing, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, these were towns that Jesus knew intimately well. They were towns that he walked, places he spent a lot of time. Chorazin and Bethsaida are just a short walk up the lake from Jesus' hometown. They were predominantly small Jewish towns where people would have been very familiar with the Torah, with God's laws and his expectations. And they were the ones that, that should have been the most ready to receive the Messiah. They should have been primed for the Messiah's work and primed to respond in repentance and faith. Capernaum was Jesus' adult hometown. It was his mission base from which he went out teaching and preaching. Jesus performed the majority of his miracles in Capernaum. And these are places where Jesus had initially great receptivity, right? People liked Jesus, right? They were amazed, the Bible says, by his teachings. If you do kind of a study on these towns and by his healings, you could say they admired Jesus. Now, Jesus compares and contrasts these small religious towns with some big cities that had a big reputation for being evil and arrogant and cruel, right? Some of these cities have been oppressors to Israel in the past. Now, you know how this goes, right? Some of you grew up in small town, Indiana. Uh, If you're from a small conservative religious town, let's just say like Danville or Mooresville or Warsaw or, you know, fill in the blank. There's time. I mean, it's basically most of Indiana outside of Indianapolis is where a lot of you grew up and didn't move back home to after you graduated from college. You know, growing up in those towns, there's nothing worse than being measured against a big city like Chicago or New York or L.A., Like, you never walk into a small town like that and like, oh, this feels like Chicago. I mean, that's like the biggest insult that you could give to a small town conservative place. You're like a big progressive city. Tyre and Sidon and Sodom were big pagan cities that had notorious reputations in the Old Testament. Basically, it was like an epithet for spiritual pride and sexual immorality and greed and social injustice and violence. These are all cities where, in contrast to people liking and admiring Jesus, they were cities where it was clear, we hate God, right? We're not into God. They oppressed God's people. They rejected God's call to repentance, and they came under his judgment. You can read about those cities in places like Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the way back to Genesis chapter 18 for Sodom. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Again, go back to the art installation. He's turning things upside down. As bad and evil, you small religious towns, as bad and evil as you think 
those big progressive cities might be, you're in worse shape. They're actually closer to repentance, closer to the kingdom of God than you are. Why? These big cities, Chicago, New York, LA, whatever, they might hate me, but they never had the privilege of knowing my law. They didn't grow up in synagogue hearing Torah taught to them. They've never heard my teachings. They've not experienced the miracles and the signs and wonders and the spiritual power that you've seen. Not, that's not the case with you. You liked me. You liked what I did for you. You enjoyed my miracles. You admired me from a distance. But you never really changed your life after encountering me. You wanted to maintain control of your life, right? You, you just wanted to use my power and my teachings for your own selfish purposes, sort of like a, a friends with benefits relationship with Jesus, right? You want all the benefits, but you don't want to actually have to give up or change anything about the way you think or about the way you live. You chose, in other words, Jesus is saying, not to hate me, but to just sort of choose a path of spiritual mediocrity, which is just as damning as if you hate me. Jesus uses this metaphor and this strong language and this irony to wake Israel up to the tragedy of their reality. He's flipping the script on them and, and the metrics they're using for their own self-assessment. They think they're insiders, and they have special access. That's the whole thing about being lifted up. That's a, that's a quote from Isaiah 14. You think you're lifted up and you have special access to God's kingdom because you've tasted the power of my miracles and your bodies have been healed. But here's the thing. Jesus says, don't mistake proximity to my presence and power with participation in my kingdom. I'm not interested in people sponsoring my presence. I want response to my presence, and I want transformation. That's the fruit of miracles. Now, I realize that these words from Jesus might sound harsh. They might sound uncomfortable for many of us in the ways that we think about Jesus, you know, maybe in his love and his grace and his mercy and all that we've seen here for the last several chapters. But just keep in mind who Jesus is talking to and remember the purpose of his words. He's talking to the religiously hard-hearted, the unrepentant, those who refuse to change direction, those who, again, want the benefits of Jesus' ministry while retaining control, right? They, they want to invite Jesus sort of onto the board of their life, but they still want to be chairperson. You know what I'm saying? They want to control their lives, their belief system, their destiny, their bank accounts, their sexuality. And so Jesus' strongest words of warning, if you read the book of Matthew straight through, his strongest words of warning and judgment are always directed at these kinds of people, the religiously hard-hearted, not towards the broken and repentant. Jesus never lays into the broken and repentant like this. And I think that's so instructive because Jesus is the only religious leader 
of all the major religions of the world that I know of that says, not only do you need to repent of the bad things you do, but you also need to repent of the good things that you do in self-righteousness. Jesus is one of the only religious leaders who tells people to repent of their religion and their righteousness. It's astounding. And his purpose, again, is to just confront them with their need to wake up, right? Like, you have become comfortably numb, to quote the famous song. You have become at ease, and you are in a place of danger. You need to turn around, wake up, and see how sick you really are in your religious system. Turn around and find salvation and healing before it's too late. This is the way of destruction. I know how this is going to end, Jesus says. And you need to wake up. I love the way that theologian Stanley Hauerwas says this and how uncomfortable this is for us, but how we need to hear this word. He says, of course, We do not like Jesus to pronounce judgment on the cities in which he performed deeds of power because we do not want to recognize that we, talking about the church, we too are judged. But the gospel is judgment because otherwise it would not be good news. Only through judgment are we forced to discover forms of life that can free us from our enchantment with sin and death. There is a a magical spell that religion, he says, can can sort of place over us where we just find ourselves at ease and comfortable with all of the, the charismatic power, all of the liturgy of the church. Meanwhile, inside, we're sick and dying. And and Jesus' words come to us as sort of smelling salts to wake us up. And this explains why Jesus prays what he does. In the next two verses, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Again, there's a sort of backhanded insult in here. I mean, this prayer is unbelievable, right? Like, we we could just do a whole sermon on this prayer. Jesus' prayer gives us this amazing insight into the inner life of the Trinity, Jesus talking to his Father about his mission and his work. And this is a foreshadowing here of a key theme that we'll unpack in more detail over the next several chapters of Matthew. And the thing that, that Jesus is getting at here is there is a hiddenness to God's ways, right? And that's what the parables are all about. There's a hiddenness to God's ways. And, and if people are gonna wake up and understand and obey his will, then God is going to have to be gracious and reveal. This is the word apocalypto, right? There's gonna have to be a, a pulling back of the curtain on reality where God speaks some things that are not intuitive, right? What he says is there, there's a group of people, what he calls the wise and the intelligent, right? Those who appear to us to be those who have life figured out right, luminaries, thought leaders, both inside and outside the church, those who rely on their own ability, their own strategies, their own power, their own mental maps of reality. They have a high IQ, maybe, but spiritually and in all the ways that matter, there's a blindness. They're blind to the wisdom of God. Be careful who you entrust yourself to, Jesus would be saying, because 
the world is blind, and often the church can be just as blind about where true human flourishing is found. God revels, Jesus says, in hiding his beauty and truth from those who think they know how life works, those with PhDs, those with power and authority, those who sort of pull the strings of history, those the world looks at as leaders. And the reason that God hides his beauty and truth from them is that if they were given access to this kind of power without the character and the vision and the heart of God, they would abuse it, they would distort it, they would twist it for their own purposes. And so God says, I'm not gonna reveal myself to those people. We're never gonna discover truth and beauty and goodness in the ways that God designed to be and rest by following the ways of the religious and the secular powerful. Instead, Jesus says it's the infants. It's the childlike, not the childish, the childlike in the book of Matthew, those who know their need for God, who cry out to God for help in humility, they're the ones, the little people, the ones on the margins, they're the ones who find God. They're the ones who find Jesus. It's no wonder then when you read back in reverse chapters nine and eight and, and back to chapter four and really think about the Beatitudes in Matthew five, it's the poor, it's the disabled, it's the sick, it's the children who are the ones who recognize Jesus, not the cultural elites. Because when you're helpless, you tend to see life a little bit more clearly than those who think they have it all together. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 11, and what we learn here, you zoom back out, to the doubters like John, there's basically three groups of people here in Matthew chapter 11. To the doubters like John, Jesus invites them to reconsider their expectations, and he invites them to a deeper trust in himself. To the proud and power-hungry religious people like Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, Jesus invites them to rethink their life and to repent. And then finally, let's look at this last group here, when Jesus is an invitation to the weary and the exhausted. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and burdened. The third group Jesus addresses is the weary and the burdened, the exhausted and the burned out. This word weary here is the Greek word kodaiao, cool word, um, which literally means beaten down, exhausted throughout Scripture, this, is a, this word is a reference to a deep physical and spiritual and emotional weariness that comes specifically through either striving or suffering, and sometimes both. Burden is the Greek word fortizo, which meant a load or a weight. We'll come back to that in just a second. So if you think about life for the average Jewish peasant in the first century, in first century Rome, their life was one characterized by weariness, by exhaustion, by feeling the constant weight of evil and brokenness. 
the crushing weight of grief and fear and status anxiety, right? Because remember, the Jewish people were ethnic minorities in a cultural moment in the empire, in ambition and empire building. So to be a Jew is to be acquainted with suffering and with weariness and with burdens. But it wasn't just the pagan Roman culture that created this pressure and exhaustion. Jesus also talked in another place in Matthew about the burden of what we could call the religious spirit that, that characterized his day. Matthew 23, 4, using the same language as Matthew 11, Jesus says this, they, the Pharisees and scribes, tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. The imagery here is of a person loading up a pack animal with such tremendous weight that the animal begins to stumble and fall underneath the weight. Jesus is saying that there is a crushing pressure called the religious spirit that was essentially the well-intended but destructive impulse to try and bring about the kingdom of God through intense religious activity. That's the religious spirit. Now, remember the Pharisees. We've talked about this many times. Just a quick reminder for those who are new to the story. They were a Jewish renewal movement. They were the most closely aligned with Jesus' theology and teachings and beliefs. Likely, if we were alive in Jesus' day, we would have been Pharisees. For those of you who consider yourself devoted religious people. They thought that Roman occupation and Roman oppression of their land came through Israel's failure to follow God's covenant with enough intensity and devotion. So they had this novel idea. Could we bring about the restoration of God's kingdom by taking the rigorous commitments and purity codes and the traditions of the priests and apply those to everyone? What if every father became a priest and every home became a temple and every table became an altar? That was essentially their mantra. And so they built this elaborate system of oral and written traditions and rules that fenced the Torah, God's law, so that if they broke one of the rules, they wouldn't be guilty of breaking the law of Moses. And so what they essentially did was they took and elevated secondary issues like circumcision and food laws and Sabbath and separation from Gentiles, secondary issues, and they elevated them to primary importance. And then they set them as boundary markers to distinguish who was in and who was out of God's kingdom. And again, there was just this desire to create safety in a broken world, which is really at the heart of a lot of legalism, right? It's trying to create safety when we're afraid. Because rules are clear, but like, the world is complex. But it didn't work, right? Instead of bringing freedom, Jesus says, instead of bringing the kingdom and, and the freedom of the kingdom, it weighed people down. It multiplied cruelty and oppression. And it blinded the Pharisees to Jesus and his kingdom. 
And so it's into this cultural moment of that kind of weariness and exhaustion, both from culture and from the religious spirit, that Jesus speaks words of life, the good news of the kingdom of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Burden is light. I love this translation from Eugene Peterson again in the message. Are you tired? Are you burned out, worn out, burned out in religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Levity with Jesus. Isn't that what we all long for? And this is astounding. Jesus' claim, considering the Jewish framework of religion of his day, come to me. Don't go to the temple. Don't go to the priest. Don't go to the Torah. Come to me. He is reorienting their entire framework for where they find life, where they go to find meaning, where they go to find truth, away from the religious systems and structures of his day and towards his own person. Come to me. This is an invitation, friends, to discipleship with Jesus, with the explicit, he's not hiding the benefit with the explicit benefit of the gift of rest. He doesn't say, come to me and I'll make you successful. Come to me and I'll grow your business 10X. Come to me and I'll give you a moral framework and teach you a Christian biblical worldview. Come to me and I'll give you political power and you can win the next election or whatever. He says, come to me and I'll give you what you need most, rest for your soul, rest literally for your psyche is the Greek word here, for that deep part of you that was created by God to be an image bearer. This word for rest is a word that was deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It's not just like a nap. It's a word that in Isaiah is better translated refreshment, or renewal. I love the way that the fourth century uh, preacher, John Chrysostom, said it. He said, not, not I will save you only, commenting on this passage, but what is much greater, I will refresh you. That is, I will set you in all quietness. Because what good is a salvation and eternal life that doesn't offer quietness and peace and rest and refreshment right now. It's no good. And, and if you read the Bible, what you see is salvation and discipleship really are tied to rest. Discipleship is about finding whole person, physical, spiritual, intellectual, relational, financial rest in Jesus. 
I mean, if, it's interesting. I was noticing the connections in the prophets this week between rest, repentance, and salvation. Those words go together often in the prophets. Isaiah 30, for the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, you will be delivered, Israel, by returning. That word returning is the word repentance. By returning, in other words, returning to me and resting. Your strength will lie paradoxically in quiet confidence. Have you ever thought about salvation that way as just rest? Like deep rest of your soul? That's what Jesus offers. So how do we find the rest that Jesus offers? Because if we're honest, there's a huge gap between the lives that we live and the offer that Jesus is making. Jesus invites exhausted people to come to him, take on his yoke, and learn from him. Now, here's the thing that struck me this week. That sounds like more stuff to do. It doesn't sound restful. Come to me and get more religious is what it sounds like. But to understand Jesus' meaning, you gotta understand the language here and several things about Jewish culture and Jewish spirituality. First, a yoke was a common rabbinical idiom of Jesus' day that essentially hyperlinked the listener to the Torah or the Jewish law. Every rabbi, not just Jesus, every rabbi had a yoke or a way of life that was based on their interpretation of the Torah. And they would call their disciples. They would say, literally, come to me, follow me, and take on my yoke, my interpretations, my way of life, according to my interpretation of the Torah. So that's one thing that's important to know, right? It's a way of life. Secondly, a yoke was an agricultural reference. Farm, if you're a farm kid, a, a yoke was an agricultural reference to a work implement, Dale Bruner, Matthew Scholar, says this, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. For in the final analysis, Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, his teachings, his lifestyle, will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way that we have been living we all have burdens, religious or not, old or young. We all have burdens. And what Jesus is saying is true rest. This is what our culture completely misses. True rest is not, we are obsessed, we are exhausted and at the same time obsessed with, obsessed with trying to find rest. And yet we have no idea how to find rest. Think about all the books telling you about all the life hacks to get more rest. And you feel more tired after doing the life hacks. What Jesus is saying is rest is not found by adopting a few life hacks to escape the burdens of life. You can't nap this out. A weekend away at the lake is not gonna do it, or 10 weekends away at the lake is not gonna do it. Which I'm all for weekends at the lake, they're nice. But I always come back feeling more tired with my kids. It's not gonna do it, and you know that. 
He says, what you need is to rethink your life. What you need is to uproot your life. What you need is to rebuild your life on an entirely different framework for what life really is and what it really means to be human. That's what Jesus is saying. Literally, he's saying, come to me, learn from me. That word learn is the word apprentice under me. Become my disciple, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does Jesus mean by his yoke being easy and his burden is light? There's nothing about following Jesus to me that sounds easy. But here's what Jesus means. Returning to our agricultural metaphor, picture here, a yoke was a wooden instrument used to tie two oxen together, right? Two oxen working as a team distributed the load, paced the work, and gave the oxen as a team access to more power than they could generate individually. You see what Jesus is saying? When you apprentice to me and you take on my yoke, it's not that I'm gonna take away all your burdens, right? You still have to raise kids. You still gotta go to work tomorrow morning. You still gotta take care of your sick parents and grandparents. You still gotta deal with anxiety. But Jesus comes up under our burdens as a partner to distribute the weight He slows us down to teach us how to live at the right pace, and he gives us access to his presence and power. So imagine all the heaviness that you feel, right? Like this, like my kids, when my kids were little, they would always want to pick up like really heavy things and move them. And like, daddy, I I, I do it. I do it, daddy. And so we're like, okay, yeah, you do it. So I'm like picking it up, and I'm doing 99% of the work, and then we're carrying it across, shuffling it across, putting it down. You know, they're grabbing the hammer and I'm grabbing it and we're hitting nails in together. They think they're doing the work, but they're not doing anything. My, my, you know, 170 pound frame is coming up under and lifting the load. That's what Jesus is saying. All of the weight you were never meant to carry by yourself. Let me come up under and partner with you and I will do the heavy lifting And the good news about Jesus in comparison to every other religious teacher of his day and to this day is that he is not a God who drives us. He is not a God who is cruel. He is not a God who is vindictive. Jesus says, I am gentle and I am kind and I am humble. This is the only place in the Bible, the only place in the New Testament where Jesus talks about his character and his heart and his inner life. And Jesus says, I'm gentle and kind. That's what makes the yoke easy. It's, it's, it's done in love by Jesus. I love what St. Augustine said so many centuries ago. Love makes all things easy. Right? When you're partnering with somebody, if there's deep love and trust, it's easy. But I don't care how strong the other person is. If it's not done in love, it's so hard. That's why the Bible talks about being unequally yoked in our relationships. Because when we're yoked to somebody who doesn't share our values and our convictions and doesn't share access to the power and presence of Jesus, the simplest thing becomes the hardest thing in the world to do. So in summary, what we find is that Jesus is inviting us to a rest. And that rest comes from following him, apprenticing to him, learning his way, 
empowered by his loving presence. That's what he's after. That's why he calls it easy and light. This is what Dallas Willard famously called the secret of the easy yoke. I love this quote from his work. In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. If we want the life of Jesus, Willard is saying, we have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. Have you guys heard this before in the book of Matthew? Over and over and over again, this is what Jesus is saying. If we want to experience his rest, we have to enter into a whole person, of, a whole person process of discipleship to Jesus that reorients us away from a way of restless striving and trying to do burdens on our own and to reorient us to the spirit-empowered grace and rhythms and teachings of Jesus. This is the invitation of Jesus to all of us this morning. How do we enter into this restful discipleship? That's a great question, and I I just wanna close with that as we prepare to go to communion. How do we actually enter into that rest that sounds so amazing and so refreshing, and yet for most of us, if we're honest, doesn't feel like the life that we're living right now, and we have no idea how to get into that? Let me just say two things. If we're gonna take on the yoke of Jesus and find his rest, we first, I think, have to examine the current yoke that we're living under. We live under a yoke culturally of restlessness and burnout and exhaustion. Just like Jesus' day, we have a weariness of a culture of restlessness, though it looks a bit different for us in 21st century digital information age. We live under the burden of a restless and exhausted culture seeking salvation through hurry, through achievement, through efficiency, through control, through performance-driven, results-driven life. And I don't need to go into all of that. We've talked about that a lot, but just a simple little quote from A.J. Swoboda here. Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history, yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that is always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Our bodies are ragged, our spirits thirst. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. This is just Monday, y'all. We call it burnout culture, right? We grind, we hurry, we hustle. And we just tell ourselves, I'm just gonna do this for a season. I'm just gonna grind it out for another quarter. I'm gonna grind it out to the next holiday. Thanksgiving's coming, I'm just gonna grind a thanks. How many times do you find yourself telling that to people? I'm gonna grind it out to next year, but here's what happens. A season of grinding becomes a lifestyle and we don't even realize it. And our souls are withering and we're tired and we don't deal with our inner grief and our loneliness and our exhaustion. And so we try to just relax 
Relaxing is not the same thing as resting. You may relax over Thanksgiving. You will not experience refreshment, I guarantee you. Right? It doesn't matter how many vacations you go on, how many dinner parties you attend, how many scrolls you do on TikTok reels, it won't go away. We are good at relaxing as a culture, but we are terrible at resting and refreshment, which according to Jesus has to involve repentance, turning away and finding rest in him. And the church isn't any better in this respect. We, keep you, we just keep you busy to distract you from the reality of your own interior world. We're busy We're as bad as anything else. The church is not often a refuge of rest. We are a contributor to the hurry and the busyness with our programs and our Bible studies and our small groups and our worship events. All the while, you don't have space to just hear the voice of God and listen to his invitation and respond. And so we we live in this culture where it's just exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. And it's burdening and it's disheartening. I love the way that Pastor John Tyson in New York City, if anybody knows about exhaustion, it's a pastor in New York City, says this, I wanna say clearly, Jesus is not glorified or seen as beautiful or desirable if his followers are exhausted and stressed and worn out in the exact same way as the world. A restful spirit is spiritual warfare in a culture of exhaustion. And men, you will have to battle and work so hard as a follower of Jesus to find the signal of truth and grace that's found in Jesus above the noise of a restless secular culture and religious propaganda. And so we have to examine our yoke of exhaustion. We have to examine our life and say, is this the life that I want? How's this working for me? I mean, I went through this in my late 20s in the church. I was a pastor. And I came to the end of my 20s burned out, anxious, panic attacks every night, could not function because I was chasing the wrong script for life and joy and happiness and meaning. And I had to do a complete reorientation of my life and relearn this passage in my 30s. Now I'm 43 and I'm still learning what it looks like to follow the easy yoke of Jesus. But I had to come to confront the brutal facts that I had had practiced my way into a way of life that was exhausting. And I, as a pastor, needed to hear the easy yoke of Jesus' invitation to myself. Examine your yoke and then say yes to Jesus. Again, maybe, right? Say yes to the freeing, liberating grace of Jesus. Follow Jesus. Become his disciple. Take on his lifestyle. Learn his way of rest. Right? That means saying yes to him at the fundamental soul level. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe it starts with like, yes, I know I'm exhausted. I know I'm weary. I need to come to you and give you my life. But there's many of us that have said yes to Jesus before, and we need to do it again. We need to say yes to Jesus again, to his imitation again, to actually learn not the right doctrine about Jesus, not the right theology about Jesus, the right ethics, but to actually take on his lifestyle And that's why it's so important for us if we're gonna pace with Jesus and we're gonna partner with Jesus and work and walk at Jesus's pace, we'll have to do two things that are completely at odds with our cultural moment. We will have to massively slow down our lives to create space, to listen to the imitation of Jesus and respond over and over again. And we will have to surrender control. And that's why Jesus gives us all of these practices Right? He gives us all of these practices in his life and his teaching and his ministry to help us rest. It's not just about saying yes to Jesus on Sunday and sipping on some communion wine and then going, okay, I'm good, and then going to live your life like everybody else. It's learning, next slide, last slide, these practices 
that open us to a way of rest. That's why Jesus gives us Sabbath. Stop your life for 24 hours a week. Stop, rest, delight, worship me. Stop the burnout culture. You're not a slave. You are a free child of God. Stop living as an orphan. That's why he gives us prayer. Stop every day and recognize my presence. Get quiet in the morning. Listen for my voice. Don't just react to life. That's why he gives us scripture to help us understand and discern what's important and what matters. That's why he gives us solitude and silence to be alone with God so that we can confront those inner realities because a lot of what's happening in terms of distraction and all of the busyness and the hurry, it's not out there, it's in here. And we like to blame out there, but it's really in here. Practices of justice and reconciliation. Man, you wanna live in rest? Why don't you practice forgiveness? You will experience so much rest simplicity of your life. I mean, I could go on and on with the practices of Jesus, but my point is we have to take on Jesus's lifestyle if we want the life that Jesus has to offer of rest. And so that's the invitation as we close our time, as we go to communion. Thank you guys for being patient here. It's just to come to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Slow down your life. Recognize the busyness and the hurry and the achievement and the performance It's not getting you where you want to go in your life. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. That's the two options, right? You can continue to strive and try to be religious and try to burn yourself out, and you will come under the warning and the judgment of Jesus because that is a way of destruction. Or you can listen to Jesus' voice, and you can recognize your weariness and your exhaustion, and you can receive his invitation to find rest for yourself. And so I just want to invite us to put our stuff away here, the go to communion, and let's just take a moment to examine our lives, to examine and be honest about how we're actually doing, right? I'm not actually feeling the fullness of life that Jesus had to offer. I'm not experiencing joy. I'm not experiencing his peace. I say I am. I live this life that looks really good on Instagram, but actually when I'm alone at night in my bed, I'm restless not experiencing the life that Jesus came to offer. And so can you just start there and acknowledge that? And then just invite Jesus into that place. Do the work of repentance. Turn around, change, trust Jesus. Commit to taking on his yoke, to learning his way. Okay, so I'll just leave you to do that here for a few moments. I wanna pray over us. I'll give us a prayer then to guide us into communion. And then we'll receive communion. We'll sing a few more songs and we'll send you out. Father, thank you that you have hidden your ways from the wise, the intelligent, the strong, those who think they have it together. And you give us little people, little broken people, hurting people, weary people, burdened people, those who know we don't have it together. You reveal yourself to us and you show us the pathways to life and flourishing and wholeness in Jesus. And so thank you, Jesus, that you continue to, to prompt and to poke and provoke and to help us to see the futility of our own efforts at trying to be for ourselves what we can't be. And thank you, Jesus, that you came to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died, to rise from the dead and to offer us new life in your kingdom. Thank you for making that accessible to us by your grace through faith. So help us now to humble ourselves under your hand and to respond in whatever way you lead us. We pray this in your name, amen.